Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. There's plenty to say about Anna Castillo, mainly because she has plenty to say. Born in Chicago in 1953, the daughter of a Mexican-Indian mother and a Mexican-American father, Castillo is a poet, award-winning novelist, short story writer, essayist, editor, playwright, translator, independent scholar, and one of the most celebrated voices in contemporary Chicana literature. Her novel, Sapagonia, was a New York Times notable book of the year. Other award-winning and best-selling novels include Give It to Me, the 2014 winner of the Best Bisexual Fiction from the Lambda Foundation, So Far From God, The Guardians, and Peel My Love Like an Onion. Her first collection of essays, Massacre of the Dreamers, was followed by the recently published Black Dove, Mama, Miho, and Me. Also a series of essays which span more than 20 years, Anna shares her family history in Mexico and the States, examines her feelings of isolation, loneliness, and otherness, and her against-all-odds journey to become a writer, activist, and parent while being forced to examine life as single, brown, and feminist. Anna is also the editor of La Tolteca, an arts and literary magazine dedicated to the advancement of a world without borders and censorship, and sits on the advisory board of the New American Writers Museum in Washington, D.C. She was the first Sor Juana de la Cruz Endowed Chair at DePaul University, held the Martin Luther King Jr. Distinguished Visiting Scholar position at MIT, and was the poet-in-residence at Westminster College. Anna studied art education at Northeastern Illinois University, got her master's from the University of Chicago, and a Ph.D. from the University of Bremen in Germany, and also has an honorary doctorate from Colby College. Anna, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So, Anna, both your parents were born in the States, your dad in Chicago, your mom in Nebraska. You two born in Chicago. What was that like growing up for you? The only variance, I think, um, uh, for me in terms of of uh, feeling um, American and not quite Mer- American is the fact that while my mother was born in Omaha, Nebraska, while her father was working in the railroads um, the, at the beginning of the 20th century, as we may all recall, there was a big boom in railroad construction between Mexico and the United States, and my grandfather was part of that. He um, uh, migrated at that point with his uh, uh, bride, and they had two children here. Um, but in 1929, with the stock market crash, um, Mexican labor was um, deported. Uh, it's uh, not quite well documented, as you might imagine. Uh, we um, estimate perhaps up to a million Mexican um, workers as well as their American-born children were deported uh, back to Mexico throughout those years without very much uh, of choice. Uh, so, so my grandparents went back to Mexico that way, and very shortly after, they uh, both uh, passed away, one after the other. I am guessing, because I don't have any records of it, that it may have been tuberculosis. These, these were, of course... Um, the early 30s, and there was a depression um, era and so on. So eventually my mother uh, did return to the States, but she never um, spoke English, never liked to speak English. She was uh, mostly indigenous uh, from her heritage, so she always looked foreign. 
Um, and she always had that very extreme sense of otherness. So if anything really was different for me was that visually we did look foreign. We did look like we were from somebody else. And I did have that experience in my own home. Were, was your mother always looking for community? No, um, she was a very, um, a very private family woman. Uh, she always worked. Uh, she brought her, her younger half-sister from Mexico with uh, her young family at some point, and they were very close. Um, I talk about my um, Aunt Flora uh, because she was so different from my mom. My mom was very quiet, very stoic, and my Aunt Flora, like her name, was very florid and very uh, gre uh, gregarious, and she loved to cook, and um, nothing ever got her down. She's still alive, by the way, and I have a wonderful um, memory of her in Black Dove, um, sort of in juxtaposition to my somber mother. Uh, so they were close. My mother was also very close with my older half-sister, um, and that was enough with for her. Uh, but she did work all her life, um, at least at one job. She was uh, uh, in the factory in Chicago most of her years, which were over 40 years um, there in that place. She had some acquaintances there. Uh, other working class women. She also sold Avon for nearly 40 years. <laughs> so for her, was, that was, you know, she had a, a pretty busy life and she always kept a neat home. And so she was never still and a very devoted wife to my father. Uh, so um, I don't think that she needed more community um, outside of her home and family life and her jobs. Anna, you mentioned a half sister. How many siblings? do you have? Did you have? Well, my mother came from um, uh, to, the, uh, to Chicago uh, with two small children, a boy and a girl. Um, and I've discussed that in, in, in the new collection. I mentioned it in an early essay called My Mother's Mexico. And more recent uh, writing, I talked a little bit more about my mother's unfortunate experience uh, being brought um, as an orphan to the U.S. border uh, by her very aging uh, grandparents with the hopes that um, their grandchildren would be able to cross over and have, you know, at least better jobs because they were, in fact, U.S. citizens. My mother um, was uh, uh, taken in by uh, her boss. Um, she didn't like to talk about it. I don't know really what the circumstances were, but I think she was, at the very least, very much taken advantage of as a, uh, a teenage girl. Mm. And um, my grand, uh, great-grandfather had no option in those days but to um, have this man be accountable to this um, young woman, uh, which he did. He set her up, you know, in a, a home, uh, but um, he was a married man. And so uh, my mother went to Chicago with her two small children who are several years older than myself. And so there was always that that distance in our household uh, between them and myself. So you were your parents' only biological child. Yes. Tell me about your growing up in Chicago and never feeling as if you fit in. Um, because you write, it's been critical throughout your life to find out who I am, that you had no one to relate to. Um, yeah, it was. Um, I think it had a lot to do with sort of like this only child syndrome, even though I wasn't an only child. My mother was, I think, um, 
very close to her older older daughter because of this shared experience, you know, as a girl and, and having had this child, you know, out of wedlock. And they had much more in common than I did um, later on growing up in Chicago. I became very involved in um, civil rights and local politics. I was very much a child of the 70s. Um, so on the on on my mother's side, even though I yearned for a closeness and intimacy with her, that almost all our lives we didn't quite have. My father, who was younger than my mother, wasn't ready to be married when he got married. So for a long part of their relationship, he wasn't really much part of the household. Um, and I was a girl, and I was the, a daughter, and he kind of left all of that to my mom. So I didn't have any real relationship with her, him. It was okay. There was no um, abuse or psychological trauma. It's just that people were just, you know, emotionally absent and quite often not physically present. Um, so I did have this very strange, um, solitary life. And I talk quite a bit about that in this um, in this book. For the first time, I am talking about my personal life and my upbringing in Chicago. There's an essay called Peel Me a Girl, in which I'm talking about probably a lot of things that a lot of people can relate to, the, um, the uh, teenage angst that kids have all the time, especially in big cities, whether they're in cities or suburbs or in the country, whether they come from big families or small families. Our teen years tend to be a struggle for whatever reason, for most kids, not for everybody, but for a lot of kids. Um, but that was what was going on in my household. By the time I reached um, 18 um, and I was just really needing something, um, where I got my community was with the um, the student rights movement and the Chicano movement. And then um, eventually in my 20s, I started to form a, a kind of a bond with a budding feminist, and I found a place for myself there. But um, at home, it was always very, very strained on an emotional level. But I was very close to them. We're a very close, tight-knit family. Strangely enough, during all that time, we spent all our holidays. I was a very dutiful daughter um, into my 30s, and, and, and um, I was with my mother when her illness um, increased. She had diabetes took care of her the last two years of her life. So I talk about that too, that I was always, we were very present physically, but not emotionally. And they really didn't get me as a poet and somebody who had wanted to strive for education and so forth. Well, that to me would ring so loud that this was not part of their world. And you had to create a world for yourself. My guess is that you found solace in books. I did indeed, but my first love was drawing and painting from my earliest memories. Um, and um, I could write, but I took the writing for granted. And I loved books. Um, and I um, always sought out everything that I could read. And I fell in love with um, Edna St. Vincent Millay's sonnets when I was a teenager, as many teenagers in this country probably have. And um, I, uh, I found the world there. Um, I didn't find anyone that looked like my mother or my aunts or anybody that I knew in those books. And I think that eventually that with my political um, inclination began to have me turn to writing. But what I've realized in, um, in Black Dove 
in reading all the essays and reading not only my own background, but how I handle a lot of things as a mother with my son, um, it was through books. And when he went through his hardest times as a teenager and later on in his 20s, I always reached out to him with the books that had always spoken to me for the yeah. poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very interesting that um, I saw myself constantly turning to authors that I loved and that had been my friends my whole life. And then I had new friends as I got older That's and terrific. searched new authors. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Anna Castillo, who is a writer and a poet and an author. Oh, yeah, uh, the list is endless. You talk about your life as a brown, feminist, bisexual woman, single parent. Gosh, that's a lot. It's not easy being marginalized in the society from birth. Um, and we have a history in this young country of what a norm is, what, you know, what uh, people feel comfortable with. I grew up um, um, as a girl in Chicago in the very late uh, 50s in kindergarten and then the 60s, and I didn't have school teachers that looked like me. So there, there begins the layering, the sense of isolation. And then you're looked at as foreign, even if you were many generations here. Mm-hmm. I look, I think, very Native American. but And so who could be more American than a Native American? Of course, yes. But th- that's the first question you always get asked is, where are you from? I'm from Chicago. No, really, where are you from? Mm. So this this layering that you that you talk about is something that I have been forced to look at not because I want to look at it, but because of how it's been cast upon me. So you felt the need as a result to define yourself? I constantly have to explain myself and define myself. The most uh, conservative, white, upper-middle-class woman in this country may or may not have to explain her sexuality, especially if she's been married or got married and only had one husband her whole life. Everybody assumes there's a sexual life going on, and but we really don't have to talk about it because it fills with falls within the norm, but when you are already marginalized and you begin to question it, I began to question it politically. I began to question it as a brown woman, as a woman who was looked as exotic. When you're looked at as exotic in this this world, you are automatically sexualized. And I began to question as to whether or not being exotic and being sexualized wasn't one of the reasons why I was being marginalized. So all of those reasons are why, as time has gone on, I began to address those issues. um, And they became, they look very complex, but I don't think that I'm any more complex than anybody else only that I have been forced to examine all of these identities that are cast on me. But did you have to examine them by yourself? Who could you share uh, this with? Who, who could help you along the way? Who could sympathize and empathize with you? This was part of that journey. That's a, that's a very important question. And I'm addressing as an individual for the first time in this book because I have always given credit to the civil rights movement, to the Chicano Latino movement, to the other Chicanas, the other brown women, to the previous uh, black women, black women writers, you know, Alice Walker or Toni Morrison, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that in your own immediate world, you are alone. And I didn't have role models 
at all. And I didn't have school teachers when people ask, well, did you have a school teacher in your grammar school that, you know, believed in you? Surely your mother and father encouraged you. And I didn't. So again, I was looking at books. And I can tell you in my early to mid-20s, and I started moving toward feminism, I did look to every printed uh, word by a woman that I could patch together an identity with. And Anais Nin was just one of my favorites because of her diaries. Um, they were so candid, but, but be also because she came from a Catholic background. She had a Spanish father, and she was a woman surrounded by a lot of macho white uh, writers, you know, at that time, uh, Henry Miller being famously one of them. Mm -hmm. So that was an important teacher for me. At the same time, I was reading Germaine Greer, who was outspoken as a feminist, but she was British, and she's white. Um, and then I'm looking at Toni Morrison for her wonderful examinations in her fiction and a world that she was describing that sounded very oddly a lot like my world with what we now consider magical realism. So I, I had a patchwork of, of, of wonderful teachers in my life that were speaking to me in my little basement apartment as a single girl and then wow. a graduate student. Um, so that was my community. I later came to know in the 30s, in my 30s, we all, all of us in very small group in our generation of women, uh, I got to know them personally. I, I got to know Sandra Cisneros in my 20s when she came back from the IO Writers Workshop. And she was also identifying herself um, in her ways. Um, and we read together quite often. Uh, later on in San Francisco, I got to know um, the Chicana feminists uh, that were writing you know, the people behind this bridge called my back. But by this point, I'm, I've been at it for about 10, at least 10, 15 years. Yeah, you're a veteran. Yes. And I had uh, the Miss Kiwala letters, which I wrote in, in isolation. Uh, my novel, Sapogonia, I wrote in isolation. And as a young mother of a newborn, my uh, first collections of poetry, I also wrote um, on my on my own. And the ideas really came from me and my communication with my favorite books and poets and um, uh, fiction writers. So you really forged ahead solo for the most part. Um, I have. I did and I have. And I have to say, for the most part, I still do, even though I acknowledge that um, no one walks the path alone, that there are many other people with similar backgrounds doing wonderful work. But I, again, I addressed this in Black Dove that perhaps part of it has to do with my personality and the upbringing that I had, which I began to uh, rely very largely on my own thought process and on my own creative process. Talk to me now about becoming a mom. I wanted to be a mother. I knew in my life from early on, and early on being maybe my late 20s, I don't know that I thought always that I would be a mom, but I did know that I would like that experience with, you know, being a mom with and having one or two children. But I knew from pretty early on in my late teens, I didn't want to be a mom before the age of 30. I was, you know, struggling for my education and this was a priority also when I decided to be a writer. Now we have, we have a precedence, not only in this country, but elsewhere in the world of married women, 
who became writers, of women who became mothers, uh, George Sand, for example, uh, who becomes a mother and, and then goes through her struggles uh, trying to be a writer in a man's world and, and then has lovers. We don't have that for women of color in this country, very specifically Latinas, Chicanas. There's nobody doing that. And so I had to make a very deliberate decision when, when I became a mother, and I was married at the time, but I didn't really see that this marriage was going to last. I had to make the decision that if I did become a mother, I would probably end up being a single mother, and I would have to figure out how I was going to support this child and myself, because uh, I'm not going to make, make a living as a writer, I thought, or as a poet, much less. So uh, this was all very deliberate, very purposeful, and I decided that I would not give up either of these really tremendous goals, which was to be a mother and also to be a writer in this country. So talk about your son, Marcelo. I read when he was 26, a college graduate, and he was a dad. He was arrested for robbery in 2009, and that really rocked your world, didn't it? It really was um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, heartbreak I've ever experienced. And this is saying that I was myself going through breast cancer. And, you know, of course, I had the losses of my parents uh, a long, long time ago. This all kind of converged at the same time? Yes, a lot was going on. Oh, that's putting it mildly, don't you think? I was uh, very private about the the cancer experience, but uh, this really was heartbreaking for many reasons. One, because he is my child. Two, because I did devote myself to being um, as devoted as I possibly could to this young man all his life, and I had nothing but the greatest hopes and expectations for him. Three, because in his late 20s, I began to perceive a tendency toward a very deep depression that he would go to, and I didn't know how to handle it. My son uh, was uh, spiraling down uh, mentally at this point by late 20s. Um, in around 2009, right? This was, yes, yeah. and he had a nice full-time white-collar job. He was supporting his young family. He adored his child. He was very, in a very unhappy relationship. Uh, he didn't know how to get out of it. That's not to make an excuse for what he did, but I do think it has some association. And another reason why it was also very personal and painful to me was because the fact that I chose to be a single mom after my divorce, I was often criticized around me uh, for the fact that I he didn't have a quote-unquote male role model in his life. I encouraged his father to be much more in his life. His choice was to not be. Um, I know that my son was suffering from this lack of of real dedication from his biological father. I know that. Um, uh, There was not much I could do about it. So when he does hit rock, rock bottom, all of that came to the surface. But where the blame went to was me. Mm. You know, his father immediately blamed me and said, um, you know, I, you should have let him come to live with me. And I said, well, I encouraged you his 
whole life to be part of his life. I was the one who was very adamant about his education, and I said I saw him through college. He never had a single college loan or preoccupation. I supported him through that. He was a good student, and his father didn't really give that much of an importance. It was a really facile way to do some uh, finger-pointing and blaming. And so, so I addressed this in this book about the fact that we do place a lot of Uh, of the burden of child raising on the mother, most of all. But we're all raising these children. We're all responsible for our children in this society. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Anna Castillo, who is a writer and a poet and an author. You know, Anna, as I listen to you, the overriding feeling that I get is that you have just hoed these roads all by yourself. You've had to sort of figure it out all on your own. For the most part, that is true. But it's also a road I chose. I realized just as I chose to be a a poet and a political poet, when, you know, you're not getting certain recognition or you're, again, there's, you know, there's a whole poetry uh, uh, world in this country where there's the chosen ones and, you know, in every aspect, in other words, that I've chosen, I take responsibility for that. And I did take responsibility for the road that I chose. As a feminist, I can I can use the feminist jargon and talk about the patriarchy, or I can go as a Latina and talk about the machismo. And, you know, a few friends would say, well, you know, um, his dad is a macho and that's why he was thinking that way. And I I thought about that and I thought, well, I didn't marry a a man at uh, my late 20s that I thought was a macho. He was an activist. He was a Marxist-Leninist. We had a lot of wonderful conversations. At that time, he was very supportive of me as as a writer. So, you know, whatever he did after that, I don't know. How he changed his way of thinking, I don't know. But so be it. This is where I'm at. And so I just take at, the, at any juncture, I take what's there, I try to reflect on it, and then, um, you know, you, like they say, you dust yourself off and you move forward. So I don't want to sound as if, wow, yeah, I'm a, you know, Joan of Arc, they're leading, leading the <laughs> troops and they're way behind me. You know, I don't think that intellectually, um, a lot of people, um, with all due respect, have to think these things through or want to think them through. And I do think them through, and I've sat down to write about them. That's part of why I did. Well, that's it. Your writing is your liberation. It it ends up being that way. I've taught the memoir as a genre for a very long time, and I walked my talk in this book uh, where I do feel that really was that. It was, it's liberating. It is, there is a healing process, and there are all the things that people ask you. Um, Is that why you write? Is that why one would write a memoir? I didn't really know totally. I wrote personal essays. When you go into that heart-wrenching, heart-searching process in writing, and you're really honest, you really do have to go in there and, and into the trenches and think about, you know, you, who you are. And that has been enormously healing for me. We're still going through it. And very, I think, healing for my son, who is on board for my, my disclosing his story. He's doing very well now. Um, we all have to go through something in our 20s. I think that was his thing. He's an awesome dad. He's been at some of the readings in Chicago for them and spoken up. Uh, So, you know, I think there is a a healing there. I wanted to also be 
healing for other families that are going through some of these things and don't know how to talk about them. Does your son, you live in New Mexico, does he, or is he in Chicago? Um, He is in Chicago for his daughter's sake. We've just about run out of time, but how I want to wind this down is by asking you what's in your future. What are you going to be working on? Because like I said in the intro, you've had plenty to say, you do have plenty to say, and you will have plenty to say. Oh, I do. I always do. And um, I have I have had in my mind um, for a few years now, at least five years, that I would like to write a book about writing. I have a title for it, a la brava. Um, I'm a self-taught writer. I wasn't an English major or a Spanish major, literature major in college. I studied other things. Uh, but I have been writing, as you say, and I taught myself how to write all of these genres. And fortunately, I've been very, very blessed that My uh, books have uh, been published and they're out there and they've had long lives and they're, you know, read and used by people in this country and around the world. And so I'd like to uh, create a book in which I'm talking a little bit how uh, how you approach each genre and uh, and take on this uh, uh, sometimes daunting task of uh, telling a story and what form you choose to tell it. Well, that advice clearly comes from an expert. Anna Castillo, I can't thank you enough for sharing your life with us, which is fascinating and still very much evolving. You're really very inspirational. Thank you. Thanks so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women, and please go to our iTunes store page, leave a rating and a review, and if you have a woman you think we should meet and interview, contact us at sandykleinshow.com. Bye, 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 bye.